You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to episode 35, part B of the Surf Simply podcast. Uh, my name's Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone, again. Asha King. Nice to see you all again. And first-time recorder, Derek Diedeker. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. Really good to be a part of the team. And how, out of 10, how nervous do you feel doing your first podcast ten. record? 10. <laughs> 11. 11. <laughs> Our podcast family is growing. It is. It was cool yesterday having five of us sitting here in the recording studio, in air quotes. <laughs> it, it was. So, um... We've all, as we said yesterday, been away on holiday. Uh, Derek, you didn't get to tell your uh, your exciting adventures yesterday. So what have you been up to? Well, first, it was really cool. Um, Danny and I traveled to Florida and got to surf the Typhoon Lagoon wave pool. Um, that looked cool. I saw your photos. Super, super fun. It takes what's sometimes a, you know, you're out in the ocean and you don't know when a set's coming. You don't know if it's a left or a right and all these things. And it takes all that and puts it into a controlled you know, you know exactly when that wave is coming out. You know how it's going to shape and everything. So taking away some of the questionable variables was pretty cool. So Danny is one of the owners of Surf Simply along with Harry and I, and she's also the resort manager here. And what she's, she probably trains harder than oh. anyone at Surf Simply. You know, like <laughs> kickboxing, and she's out yes. running like miles every morning at 5 a.m. Absolutely. Um, but she's not the bravest, and I say this with all the love and respect <laughs> and affection in the world, she's not True. the bravest when the surf gets a little bigger. So how was she uh, at Typhoon Lagoon? Was she looking at it going, oh, I'm not sure Ooh, about I this. I don't know about it's, this one. It's funny. That's a good <laughs> question because she, I totally agree with you when it comes to toughness, God, cardio, I can't even, I can't come anywhere close. I can't hang with her. But when it comes to surfing a bit bigger waves, the Typhoon Lagoon wave is, I would say, about shoulder high, pretty mushy. You know, she's paddled out in much, much bigger waves than this, but being in that pool and those different surroundings, you paddle out to this wall that's huge rock wall behind you and you just wait. And for your first wave ever, if you've never done it, it, t- it sounds like a massive toilet flushing right behind the wall. <laughs> I yeah. think a toilet kinda, the size of a house. I think that's kind of how it works too. It's, it, it flushes the wave into the pool, uh-huh. doesn't it? Yeah, it, they Drops pump water in. It's water. the same as the wave pool out in Abu Dhabi that Sam surfs right. and I, I've surfed. I will tell you, even though it's not... It's not an intimidating wave by any means, but when you're sitting out there, especially if you've never done it, I've surfed the wave pool a handful of times, so I remember what it was like. You're sitting out there, and you hear this big, big flush, and all of a sudden, this wave starts to grow behind you, and if you've never surfed it, you don't really know, should I start paddling hard? You know, it's not like you watch this wave coming in like a set, like in the ocean. It's a little bit different, so for Danny, for her first wave, you could see it in her eyes of, should I paddle hard? Should I pop <laughs> yeah. up now? What should I do? But after just a few, she found her groove and did really, really well. I was super proud of her. It's, it, it's funny what you're saying about not knowing how to paddle because you don't realize it, but when you watch a wave coming in the ocean, yeah, you've got mm-hmm. 30, oh, yeah. 40 seconds watching this wave roll towards you. And you, human eyes are, are very good at working that out. So you, you know how fast the wave's moving towards you and how fast you need to paddle. Right. I mean, if it's, if it's anything like the one in Abu Dhabi that I've surfed, you've got about five seconds yep. from That's the it. wave suddenly bubbling out of the bottom of the wall yeah. to you needing to catch it. And it's, it's so right. quick. You, the, the, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> it, it, what's cool is that Typhoon Lagoon, every 25 waves, you can tell them whether you want a left or a right. So mm-hmm. we did 25 left, 25 right, 25 left, 25 right. And for that first left or right, whatever you choose, when that flush sounds and you hear it, it's water dumping in sections behind the wall. So yeah. they start with the opposite side. So yes. you're tucked in the corner going, okay, I'm going to go left. 
And when the wave comes out, it starts on the opposite side of the pool. So you kind of see it coming. Yeah. And it, it gets pretty intimidating. It looks like it's a you know solid head high wave. And by the time it wraps and starts to pick you up, then it's just like, you know, that back to how hard should I paddle? Should I pop up now? Do I need a couple more seconds? How much should I angle? You know, things like that. So. And Asha, you've been out in Indo forever. So we reviewed South to Cyan back in July, was it? Mm-hmm. So you basically went over there and sort of retrod the steps of South well, to Cyan. You, you yeah. did it in reverse. In yeah. reverse, yeah. I basically <laughs> went, yeah, after, after the satellite project, I went to G-Land and, and scored there and got probably the waves of my life. And then I went to, to South Sumbawa afterwards and just drove back up to Bali and met up with a bunch of the Deus crew who we've talked about a bunch in the podcast. So I pretty much did the reverse trip, just as you said. I, I stayed with Dustin Humphrey, who's their creative director, and rode motorcycles for a week and, and borrowed a, a bunch of their twin fins and bonzers and, and had the best time down there. They, they really showed me a good time. So thank you very much, Deus Temple of Enthusiasm. You guys are the best. And you surfed in the nine foot and single Deus contest. Uh, the Slide Toberfest. Oh, the Slide Tober. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a triple pronged uh, like beach track moto racing, which is just basically a big racetrack made in the sand and just sliding all over the place. And then the Moto X event was the next day, and then on the third day they do a, a surf contest, where uh, you draw straws, and whoever gets the biggest straw gets to select their board from Deus's quiver first. So if you got the big one, you're like, oh, I'm gonna. You know, maybe I'll score the Rich Pavel twin fin or, or maybe a little something pretty friendly. And if you're the guy that got the, the small straw at the end, you might be finless. Oh, that's so, cool. Oh, it was so much fun. It, it was just kind of a more of a contest. It was kind of a, a fun weekend. And I, I had the best time ever. And speaking of the Deus guys and, uh, and Harrison Roach, he's writing now, as some of you may have seen listeners for Surf City Magazine, mm-hmm. he did a really good interview with Mark Cunningham, the North Shore lifeguard and famous body surfer, who you might have seen in Broke Down Melody. And he's just done a really nice article on the fish as well and on surfing it in big waves, which I feel, which I feel really vindicated by because since I stole your fish, Harry, yeah. I've been surfing it in everything that the ocean throws at me. It was actually the only board I rode the whole time I was in Hawaii as well. I was about to say that you sort of took that board back to its spiritual home, didn't you? Because it's, it's one of those round-nosed fishes and it was uh, Corey Lopez. Was it Corey and Shea Lopez? That was all, I think a lot of that was, was on the North Shore at the beach park, well, it wasn't was, it? It was, it was all, yeah, North, North Shore riding that 5'5", five, five, 19 and a quarter round-nosed fish design, so... Well, I've got the 5'10", because I'm not quite as agile as those guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, on the subject of boards, you've, you've got two new ones, weirdly, Rue. Well, I have. I got a big thank you to Malcolm Campbell, who made me a bonza and sent it through. And actually, he made two. He made one for me and one for my partner, Maureen. And she had a surf on it last night. She's sort of just at the stage where she's catching waves regularly on a longboard. And she can catch like you know perhaps one or two waves a session on a shortboard, but finds it pretty hard work. And but she finds, you know, on a longboard, she, she's always trying to do maneuvers. She's not just a down the line kind of surfer, mm-hmm. but, you know, she, she's pretty small and pretty light and finds it difficult to sometimes turn the board all the way around. And she went out for a surf on the Bonza last night, which is a 6-2. Mm-hmm. And she did the best surfing I've ever seen her do. You know, and so, sometimes she gets out of the water giving herself a bit of a hard time, but she's beaming from ear to ear. You know, yeah. I, she came up onto one of the whitewater sections in front where she would usually then jump off the back of the wave. And she bounced the board off it and came like flying down the face back onto the flats, 
looking for the next section to bottom turn up and into, you know, and she was so surprised that she'd completed this maneuver with so much speed, you know, she's just like a whole face lit up. It's always really cool when you see people nail that for the first time. Yeah. And th those, uh, I, the Bonza egg is what both she and I have. And I just think they're such, such fun boards for working on cutbacks and floaters in the kind of waist to head high surf that, you know, a lot of us are surfing in most of the time. Uh, also interesting on the note of the Bonzer eggs is I've had my egg for about a year and have loved it. But when I felt y'all's, it feels a lot more foiled out, meaning the thickness kind of tapers off between the nose and the tail. It feels way thinner in the tail. And that's just anecdotal. I haven't, I haven't measured them, but it does feel a lot kind of more refined than mine. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I mean, I assumed that that was because they were all hand-shaped and so they're all a little bit different. But you were saying that they're not, Harry? No, he definitely uses shaping software because I've, I had a conversation with him when me and Asher got ours done. So I got this Bonds because I surfed yours, Asher, and it was just so fun. And it's so good. We, we won't talk about Bonds too much because we did about two episodes about a year ago just talking about Bonds <laughs> and nothing else. But for listeners who, who weren't around back then, the Bonza is the Campbell Brothers surfboards and it's a, a designed specific to them. Although, you know, you can get Bonzas from, from other shapers as well. Malcolm Campbell is now working in collaboration with Channel Island Surfboards. Yeah. Oh, is he? I didn't and see And they're that. producing, you know, the, the shortboard from Shelter. Yeah. Uh -huh. yep, they're, yep. they're producing that model as part of the Channel Islands range. It's, oh, that's now, very it's cool. now on the CI website. Malcolm used to be an in-house shaper for Channel Islands. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a really cool experience buying the board from Malcolm. So, you know, we deal with Firewire a lot and they provide boards that we use at the resort now. And they're just, they're just I think Firewire is, is the leading the surfboard production you know business model I, I think that they're doing these great shapes and the materials they're using are innovative and they're trying to be environmentally conscious and they've got a really good system down for production mm -hmm. uh that you know they, we all, we have a conversation about what boards we want he gets everything made it gets shipped it's like really seamless and i can go through the website looking at volumes and and the whole the whole thing is like pat 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 and it happens and then Malcolm Campbell, you know, I emailed him a year ago. We had a little back and forth. He went down to Brazil because his uh, daughter was having a baby. He was there for a while. And then we still emailing back and forth as he headed over to France. And he was over there for a little bit. Then we had a little phone chat one day, which was really nice. <laughs> Got to know him a little bit. And then at the end of August, he emailed me. So about 11 months after I'd first got in touch, his attention to detail was awesome. But it was just like such a nice, old school, soulful process of buying a board. Mm -hmm. I mean, short of actually being able to go into the shaping shed and blow the dust off the glass. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a really cool kind of experience. So, so I'm going to really treasure these boards now. I almost don't kind of want to surf them. They're so beautiful. They're like... You've brought a new stroke old board back this time as well, Ash? Yeah, and the, I, I guess it's a new old board. I've had it for a while in Florida. I kept a, a, a twin fin there just because the waves are, are pretty pretty junky in my hometown of Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've kept an MR twin fin there the last couple of seasons for when I'm just back home. Uh, so for listeners who don't know, the MR twin fin uh, stands for Mark Richards, who was world champion in the late 70s, early 80s. He got three world titles, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he, he was particularly famous for, apart from being one of the busting down the door crew on the North Shore, he was particularly famous for riding twin fins when everyone else was riding single fins. And he still shapes now. Mm -hmm. So the MR twin fin is sort of the most... I would say the most iconic, not the original, not the first fish, but the most iconic of all of the, the twin fin fish surfboards. Yeah. Well, it's certainly one of, I, I think most people identify the, that Steve list. I think they generally just get called retro fish now, don't they? Yeah. But I think, I think what, what Mark Richards did was introduce that blend between a, the old keel fin fish, 
and the sort of more high-performance shortboard fish. Yeah, uh, and, and fish is a really blanket term now. So mm. the the list fish has, it, it's a really well-thought-out design. It's, it has extremely parallel rails, uh, and the straight rails give the surfboard a lot more drive, which is something that has been criticized of a surfboard lacking that has two fins. But the combination of the straight rails and then uh, the keel fin fish, it, it has a lot of surface area, so it, it really increases the overall drive of the surfboard. However, the downside of that is... The boards can be called stiff or, or not, you know, being able to get it where you want on the wave. So to combat that, Steve Liss made the surfboards extremely short, which is that's the design that Harrison was advocating in the article. So, so again, just for listeners, that when we talk about drive, we're really meaning that when the board's going through a turn, it's keeping its speed going mm-hmm. as opposed to slipping a little bit and losing its speed. Again, I think the analogy of a car going around a corner is quite a good way to think about it. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned, speaking of that MR, Asher, I have to throw a little bone here to you that I saw on the surf report we had all just gotten back into town and I'm waking up checking the waves and see a picture of Asher up in the air on his MR that was yeah, I, don't twin see, I don't see you go to the air too often but these no, pictures I, look solid I typically keep it on the wave face yeah. but uh yeah the port's so fast I was scrolling through my feet I was like is this Asher up in the air Rolling into the news then, part A of this episode was was sort of focused on contest news, and so this part B episode we're going to focus a little more on some non-contest stories that have caught our eye over the last few months. The first thing that really had some direct effect on us was the uh, Mentawi surf tax. It did have a bit of effect on us. (laughs) (laughs) This happened just before we were heading out to Indonesia, and the Indonesian government decided to enforce a tourist effectively it's a tourist tax isn't it yeah it's effectively it's a tourist tax that you pay eighty dollars and you get a a certificate and a wristband which the wristband you don't have to actually wear when you're surfing but the idea is it's it's sort of a pay-to-play it's Mm -hmm. you know you to use our resources to use our waves it's a it's an eighty dollar fee that's supposed to go back and protecting it it's been in talks for a while uh we knew about it for about six months but they only decided to enact it about two weeks before our group went out to the Mentawis. So on one hand, having that cost sprung on us, I mean, our, our surf camp in the Mentawis this year wasn't made to generate profit. Yeah, It was more made to, to kind of get us out there and experience it. And, and test the waters. And, and yeah, test coaching in that area. So it was a bit of a kind of a shock. Yeah, it was a shock <laughs> cost when we were about to leave in two weeks. Um, However, I, I, I do understand where they're coming from. Uh, well, I think it's, it, it, for those of you guys that haven't been out of the, the Mentawi Islands are, if you look on a map of Indonesia, you've got the, the chain of main islands, which is sort of Sumatra, Java, and down to Bali. If you go 100 miles out into the Indian Ocean from Sumatra, you'll see a couple of tiny little dots, which is, is the Mentawi Islands. And there really is nothing there. The, the only industry is the surf tourism industry out there, beyond a little su- subsistence yeah. farming and subsistence fishing. And the, I mean, the local people are, are, you know, they're incredibly nice people. And it's such a beautiful area that if that $80 per person actually goes towards preserving the area, helping the people, then I'm absolutely fine with that. But the problem in the gray area is, you know, is where's that money going? So you don't know exactly. Yeah. So... I was just looking before the show at transparency.org, which yeah. is a, an international governing body that tries to assess. It doesn't actually assess corruption, but it, it describes it as the perception of corruption. <laughs> so, and it has, a, it has an index. It's really interesting. 
right? So I looked up the United States, which is there's 168 countries on it, and like the number one is the least corrupt country, uh, which I think was Denmark. Fin- yeah, was it Denmark? Denmark, Denmark then Finland. Then Finland. That's right. You're right. And then and, uh, I think the UK is at number 10 and the US is at number 16. So pretty good scores. Number 76 equal is like India and Brazil. Does anyone want to guess where Indonesia falls on the scale? A little further down. <laughs> A little further down. <laughs> 88, which is not good. It's an equal 88th as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a long way below halfway. And if I was to guess, I, I would say the corruption becomes exponential as you move down the scale. <laughs> I'd say the difference between Finland and Great Britain and the United States are all, is pretty low. You know, they're the top 16, but it's, you know, they're all fairly uncorrupt, you know. Uh, but as you get to 50, it, it's quite a bit more corrupt. Once you get to the 80s, that, that corruption increases even more. So they, they have another stat on here, which they call cor- control of corruption. I don't know why it's called that, but what it basically means is how much of the public resources are being like siphoned off to private individuals, right? So if you get 100% on this scale, then you're squeaky clean and everything stays belonging to the government as it should, you know, and, and 1% would basically mean that the private individuals have stolen everything from the government. So again, just by comparison, the US gets 86, no, the UK gets 90%. And Indonesia gets 27%. So, <laughs> wow, that's pretty bad. So the likelihood that all of that money is going back to the local ecology and economy, I would say is about, well, 27%. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a few bucks. I mean, hopefully that can work. There's no obligation to pay the tax. If you would, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that if you were to go over there with a surfboard and just stay at someone's house and go surfing, you'd probably... You probably would fly under the radar. But all the tourists, if you are involved with any tourist operation over there, you have to have paid the tax. So if you're staying on a charter boat, if you're staying at a resort, anything like that, if you're using, I think if you're using local charter boats to go and check waves, all of those things, you're meant to have paid that tax. Would that $80 cover you for a month or however long you would no, stay? No, 10 or? days. I was, there, I was there days. for was, 20 f- days. 15 days, I think. It yeah, because I was, on, I was there 20 days, so I had to pay twice. Wow. Yeah, and with the so an average boat trip is either ten days or two weeks, and so they've done fifteen days. So okay. most people are only going to have to pay once. Wow. Those of us that go on special extended trips, like <laughs> Mr. King over there, yeah, uh, you <laughs> gotta pay to play. I'm pleased that we got you back. I thought we were, you were just going to go AWOL in Indonesia for a while. Yeah, just stay there. <laughs> Every now and again, I just see a picture on Instagram when you find some internet of you just sitting deep inside some Indonesian slab somewhere. I'm like, oh yeah, it was it was tough to leave, but I'm happy to be home. Um, one thing that did come out while we were off air was a list of surfing podcasts, which uh, actually took me slightly by surprise because when we started a couple of years ago, it was us and the down the line surf splendor guys, and it was there were only two surf podcasts, and they suddenly said the best seven surfing podcasts. Like, what? Where are all these other ones coming? There's eight of us. <laughs> they yeah. meant they meant to do a top ten, but the bottom three slots are empty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, we. But yeah, it seems like that there have been quite a few surfing podcasts. So for those of you, I apologize again uh, for our absence over the last few months, but perhaps some of you have found uh, some of these other guys that are listening to. If you haven't, I, I'm just definitely going to jump in there and say, if you haven't listened to Down the Line Stroke Surf Splendor, definitely go and have a listen to them because they've been going for years and years and years and years and 
they have very good connections in the surf industry. They pick up on a lot of rumour and gossip way before anyone else does. That, that, that they were like the originals. Scott yep. Bassett down the line, he's like the godfather. He's like the madman of, podca- of surf <laughs> podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. The other one I've really enjoyed, we had him on the show a few months back, but is uh, Dave Prodan from the, uh, WSL. Has his own podcast, uh, Kill the Messenger. He, he's a really, really interesting guy, actually. Yeah. When we interviewed him on the show, I was so impressed by the breadth of his knowledge and I didn't realise how far back his sort of uh, experience within the evolution of professional surfing has gone right back to him being mentored by Rabbit Bartholomew mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, yeah just really really interesting guy yeah really really good um, so yeah his his show is well worth checking out the other podcast that I'm hoping is, is going to go down a good route is um, Mark Okalupu Oki has his own show um, the Ockcast the Ockcast and obviously being Oki has access to some pretty stellar people he's already interviewed John John and Kelly and Joel Parkinson. One of my favourite ones that they have an even more erratic recording schedule than us is Ain't That Swell, which I think is just the most hilarious and the most Australian thing on iTunes. Uh, (laughs) 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 It's really funny. I really enjoy that. So yeah, check that one out as well. And actually, the surf podcast world has grown so much that there is now one that I'm going to recommend to you that is not even on the list, which is one called Surf Mastery, which I've been really, really enjoying. It's a guy called Michael Frampton, who is a surf coach. He's involved in sports coaching, and he's interviewed a whole series of guys, nutritionists, fitness coaches, about what techniques they use to coach guys all the way up at the sort of elite competitive level. Long form interviews with those guys and really, really interesting to hear some of the stuff that's being put out. And uh, actually, hopefully, we might get Michael on the show over the next couple of months. Final bit of news for this episode is the Andy Irons documentary. They released the trailer a couple of weeks ago. If you listeners haven't seen it, it's now on the show notes for this episode. It's definitely worth a look. It looks like it's going to be a bit of a tearjerker, at least from the people involved with it. Yeah, powerful trailer. Powerful trailer. Uh, so, obviously, they have enough production done to uh, to release that trailer, and they've mm-hmm. done all their interviews, and it, it looks like the finished product is going to be really impressive and mm-hmm. actually tell the story that everybody wants to hear. But I noticed that at this stage, they're crowdfunding it. Um, yep. What are they crowdfunding at this point? Is it just the post-production? or what, um, What's the advantage of crowdfunding that versus doing it you know, with you know, private capital? Well, the big thing is that it removes them. You know, if Billabong produces it or the Irons family produce it, let's be honest, his death and his life was not devoid of scandal. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess by crowdfunding, they're free to edit however they want. You know, as a, as a filmmaker, if you take money from Billabong, Billabong, you're in Billabong's bi- pocket. Like you're in Billabong's pocket, and if Billabong say they don't want to mention the drugs, they don't want to mention some of the seedier stuff that's going to come out in that, or or that should come out in that story. I always think that when you learn about someone's life, right? Anyone has got stuff that's happened that's bad, or the mistakes that they've made, or seedy stuff they've done, and especially, of course, in politics, people always terrified that any of that stuff will come out it's always so refreshing when you read a biography and you know you read about someone talking frankly and openly and honestly about all that stuff Uh, but and I think it's really important because it makes us all realize that you know nobody's perfect and Mm -hmm. just because someone has had these things happen to them or things that they've done it doesn't actually detract from what they've achieved I think that's like the real message that I take home from it yeah and so you know I'm really curious about Andy Owen's life because he's someone that I always admired a lot and I love the way he surfs you know and I'm sure that there'll be re- revelations about drugs and various other things that happened in his life but I don't think that that's a bad thing and I don't think it detracts one bit from what he did and achieved in his life 
And no, I, it's a story. It's a story that I I want to hear, uh, and I and I won't think any less of him when those revelations come yeah. out, if they do. Uh, and I think it will be not such an interesting film if it's all glossed over, you know. Absolutely, yeah. and I, and I I don't know this for sure. It's not what they say on the Kickstarter project, but my feeling would be that the people who are likely to put money in to fund the whole project is always going to be Billabong, the Ayers family, and there's an agenda there. Yeah, to leave a clean legacy. Mm-hmm. That maybe isn't in the interest of the uh, you know the public, and I, I I think it is important. You know, surfing and board sports in general. There's, there's been a certain ideology of you know drug culture and and party culture, and mm-hmm. th- there's a downside to that. And I think it's important that stories like this get told. And I think that we're big advocates of surfing as a sport rather than as a lifestyle because, you know, we sort of all agree that we think that's the way you can actually ultimately get the most out of it as a lifestyle, ironically, is to approach it like a sport. You know, and I I do think that, you know, we want kids to look at surfers like Mick Fanning and see what they've achieved rather than, you know, some of the Mickey Dora perhaps in the 60s and some of the more rock and roll giving the whole uh, system the finger. And, you know, that doesn't have to go hand in hand with surfing. And I wouldn't want to advocate that. But, you know, I'm also I just think telling stories about what actually happened in, you know, with all of the shades of grey and light and dark is important because, you know, as a, as a culture, that's how we kind of mature rather than just glossing over things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, it kind of just reminds me of, you know, kids in middle school, elementary school, when we get our history books. Asher, we both grew up in Florida. You know, I know like U.S. history or, you know, around the world for that matter. I'm sure that, you know, there is a bit of whitewashing going on that kind of turns you into little, you know, put your blinders on and just be a cheerleader and wave the flag when... To be honest with you, the true story of our country and the true stories of some other countries, if you would tell the true story to the kids, it's like Game of Thrones. There's more, you know, if you expose them to some of the, you know, even if it is bad, it's like you said, it's not going to make us dislike Andy anymore. But when you give us the real honest truth of what really happened, I think it's more impactful. Yeah, it's much more impactful. And it's always, everything is always more nuanced and interesting the deeper you dive into it. I mean, just pretty much just true across the board, Definitely. I think. And that includes people's lives. It's funny what you say about school, you know? It's funny, like, I, you're taught in school that your country is the goodies right. in every war. <laughs> I love that Mitchell and Webb sketch, those two comedians where they're Nazi SS officers. Yeah. And one of them taps the other one on the shoulder and goes, um, I was just thinking, you know how we have skull and crossbones on our <laughs> yeah, uniforms? Do, do you think we're the baddies? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I didn't even realise until I left school and started looking a bit more objectively at world history, and I was yeah. like, wow, England were the baddies in almost every war <laughs> that they were in, you know? I had the same feeling. Our main feature for this episode is a bit of news that is not maybe directly surf related but is going to impact all of us a lot over the next few years you may have seen in various news sources or in your facebook feed recently that the world's largest marine protection area has been unilaterally decided upon in an area called the ross sea which is part of antarctica in the southern oceans and we just thought it'd be really interesting to to dive in i think you've been looking into it a little bit rue uh, yeah, we'll dive in, if you excuse the pun, on, on why this is really, really relevant to all of us as surfers. So this is a really amazing story. They announced this this new marine reserve in the Ross Sea, which is pretty much underneath New Zealand, just off Antarctica, and it's 600,000 square miles, and they've, they've announced it's going to be a no-take zone, which means no one can go in and get anything from there for the next 35 years. Now, that this is a huge deal, right, because... 
and, and I just want to rewind and explain why this is so important. And I want to reference an article that actually came out about a year ago that the World Wildlife Fund released. It's a little bit data heavy, but I'm just going to pull out a few things that I, I think are pretty mind blowing, actually. Okay, so last September, the, the World Wildlife Fund issued a report called the snappily titled Living Blue Planet Report of Species, Habitats and Human Wellbeing. Okay, so there was a thing called the Living Planet Index, which came out in 2015 and the World Wildlife Fund do every year. The one in 2015 was huge because previous to that, the one the year before had less than half as much data. And it basically looks at reptiles, fish, mammals, uh, birds and their populations all over the planet. And the findings are pretty shocking. So the overall decline, and this isn't just marine life, this is all life, um, between 1970 and 2010, so that 40 year period during which most of our listeners have probably been alive, the overall decline has been 52%. Wow. I mean, I, I didn't actually know that, and that, that kind of blew my mind. Now, the report that they put out was specifically looking at the marine aspects of, of that data, right? And just to put this in context, this isn't just about, you know, looking after the, the animals on the planet. This is actually a huge factor for humans as well, and economically and politically. Nearly three billion people are relying on fish as their major source of protein, right? And fishing and aquaculture ensure the livelihoods of between 10 and 12% of the world's population. So 60% of the world's population live within 100 kilometers of the coast, more than half the world's population. Um, so yeah, as I say... Never mind the actual marine environment, this is, this is a really important factor for stability and growth generally. The Living Planet Index looked at 10,380 populations of just over 3,000 different vertebrate species of land and sea. And then the marine aspect looked at about half of them. So it was, it was 5,829 populations of 1,234 marine species. That doesn't just mean fish, that's also birds and mammals and pretty much anything that lives in the sea. The decline in populations of just the marine life in that same 40-year period is 49%, so slightly less than on land, just under half in your lifetime, listeners. I mean, you know, as I say, that's pretty shocking. They actually updated that uh, in 2016 with the report, showing that it's gone from, uh, you know, around 50% up to 58%. That's just in an extra year. And they predict that by 2020, that number will be 66%. So pretty much two-thirds of all life on the planet in and out of the water will have disappeared since 1970 by 2020. That is like, a crazy statistic. Yeah, I, like just stop and let that sink in for a moment. Uh, unfortunately, that isn't all the bad news. So that's the baseline for marine species. But when we look at particularly important species, which the World Wildlife Fund calls index species, then the news gets a little bit worse. Index species are really important because they're the ones that are that are really impactful more so than, than other species. You know, they're important in the food chain or mm -hmm. they're important economically. So one of the big index species, and I may be pronouncing this wrong, is called uh, scrombidae. Uh, now, you might not have heard of that, but that basically is most of the fish that you eat. So uh, mackerel, tuna, I, I think sardines as well. Um, so and that, so that's, that's most of what's fished and what you would order in a restaurant. Now, that's declined from 1970 to 2010 by 74%. Wow. The North Atlantic deep sea fish populations in the same period have declined by 72%. Um, 
and that's not even as bad as it gets sea cucumbers which are really key part of a lot of uh, marine ecosystems uh, sea cucumbers by the way became like a delicacy in restaurants uh, in the early 90s and they started being fished somewhere around that time 93 94 um, in the galapagos they started being fished specifically in 93 and between 93 and 2004 the sea cucumber populations in the galapagos dropped by 98 percent and in the Red Sea, just off Egypt, in the same period, they dropped by 94%. When they brought in the fishing ban in 2003, they dropped by a further 45%. So it's not even just like bringing in new laws is actually working if they're not being properly, if they haven't, not laws that have been properly thought through so that they're sustainable and are allowing people to work with them, then people are just going to go out and break the laws or, or if the laws aren't properly enforced. Right. Um, the big one that we've you know all heard about, especially as surfers, of course, is coral reefs. Now, just to put this in context, 25% of all the species in the ocean live on coral reefs. And coral reefs actually make up 0.1% of the area of the ocean. So to give you a reference, that's about half the size of France. That's all the coral reefs in the world. And, and a quarter of the marine life live on them or around them. 75% of the coral reefs are classed as threatened by the World Wildlife Fund. And by extrapolating the current data from 1970 to 2010, they'll all be gone by 2050. So that's within most of our lifetimes. There just won't be any coral reef left, which, again, it's just, I mean, I, I knew things were bad, but I, I find this actually like pretty upsetting. So, so why are the oceans so threatened? Well, the main problem with the coral reefs is that raising CO2 levels, when, when that happens in the atmosphere, the temperature goes up, which is climate change. Uh, when it happens in the sea, the sea becomes more acid. So acidification in the water is mostly what's killing off the coral reefs. But there's lots of other factors as well, like pollution and coastal development and runoff and oil spills. But uh, CO2 uh, output is, is the one big factor. And the other really big one is overfishing. So, you know, there's a lot of vegetarians who are pescatorians because the, they make, you know, the claim that fish don't feel pain which actually is a kind of dubious claim in itself. And there's a really interesting podcast, just as a little aside, called Rationally Speaking by Julia Gilliff. And she recently did an episode called Do Fish Feel Pain? That's interviewing neurologists about it. And I, the short answer is it depends how you define pain and it depends how you define fish. But it's a really, <laughs> it's a really interesting episode. Um, but anyway, you know, it's really worth thinking about what fish you're ordering in restaurants and have they been caught by trawling nets or have they been line caught and is it sustainable the way that they're being put on your plate? It's, mm -hmm. it's a big deal and it's something that's very pertinent, you know, right that's now. Good point. Uh, okay, so here's the good news. It, there's a silver lining. <laughs> don't worry, I don't want to leave everyone really depressed. So in parts of Mozambique, the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, not the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> classic mix-up. <laughs> classic, <laughs> classic mix-up. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> uh, has stepped into some areas and has um, implemented and monitored sustainable fishing techniques. And in that time, fish populations locally have gone up by 300%, which is far faster than people were expecting. So, you know, it, it's not like we're over the cliff already. There is a slim fighting chance that we can, you know, pull this situation back from the brink. Do you guys know what the coral triangle is? So it's, it's basically a, a huge area of sea, about the size of Australia, directly above Australia in the Indian Ocean. So up until recently, the largest marine protected zone was actually in the, the coral triangle and was around the Chagos Islands and run by the Chagos Trust. And a little pop quiz for my fellow podcasters. Does anyone know who the president of the Chagos Trust is? Up until last month, the largest marine reserve in the world? Mm -hmm. 
it was friend of the show, Sam Perkis. Yeah. Really? There you go. Oh, there go. So next time you see him, you can uh, give him props for that. Yeah. Sam. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that cool? Really amazing guy. Awesome. Just kind of low-key, yeah. quietly hangs out <laughs> on the beach. But there you go. So one thing I love about the Coral Triangle is there's, there's six countries working together, and they're all trying to implement a multitude of different systems through a, a lot of different governing bodies, trying to implement better practices around you know, pollution and fishing practice to protect these reefs. And they've seen whole new areas of reefs, reefs growing in the Coral Triangle in the last five years. So it seems like although we're really devastating the marine population, they're actually going to turn around quicker than we thought if we can implement some new systems of fishing and protect some areas and you know really start taking steps now it is nice to hear that that silver lining at the end that you know when we do protect an area when we do make a change that the growth coming back is actually more than we thought it that's kind of like yeah. you said we're it's not too late to rein it in we're not over the cliff yet that's good to hear that do you guys see that article that was circulating around facebook a couple of weeks ago that it was uh it was like an obituary for the great barrier reef Mm-hmm. And it was it was really popular. It was like, oh, rest in peace. You know, it, it was basically just a mock obituary, and it it was spread like wildfire all over the internet. And there are all these oceanographers and scientists are like, whoa, hold on, we haven't lost the fight yet. Please, please <laughs> yeah, do not circulate that. Do not like, it, it's not right. done. The cause is not lost. Right. So this is bringing us back to this news, and this is why this is so important. This new area in the Ross Sea down off Antarctica is now the biggest marine reserve in the the world. As I said, it's 600,000 square miles, and it's a no-take zone, so no one can go in there and take anything out. Uh, There's a lot of life in there, but the most important one is the krill, which form the bottom of the food chain for whales and seals particularly, and and they they filter through to the whole ecosystem of the sea. So it's it's really, really important. So we have this giant reserve. Who enforces that it's a no-take zone? Because that's really important because there's a lot of people that would just come in there and take it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, and that's this... been a huge problem off the east coast of Australia and in Indonesia that countries outside of those that it's their waters just come in with these giant trolling nets and just take all the fish. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know who, which body is enforcing it in any specific areas. But what I really like about this project is that it's a huge collaboration between countries yeah um and, you know and, and i always find it kind of warms my heart a little bit when you see countries putting aside their political differences and like looking after the planet so the last nation to get on board with this was russia and just recently russia and china and america were all sitting around a table shaking hands and agreeing to protect this area of ocean oh that's awesome yeah. you know which is given what's happening in aleppo at the moment you know it's mm-hmm. it's just fantastic that this is also happening you know yeah. having said that China wanted to try and make it only protected for 20 years. They agreed on 35 years in the end. Hopefully that will get extended out. Just as a side note, yeah, the, the big problem is commercial fishing, right? You know, like me going and fishing at the river mouth is quite... Yeah. It's much better than me buying fish at a restaurant. Yeah, so, so a good rule of thumb is if you're, if you're ordering fish, if you're buying fish, you want to have line caught fish. Not yeah. trawled fish, not commercially caught fish. I prefer to catch my fish. <laughs> yeah. If you do want to eat fish, the best kind of fish to eat, especially if you're in, in the States, is lionfish, which yeah. yeah, which breed incredibly quickly. There's millions of lionfish all off the east coast of Florida going down into the Gulf of Mexico. There are actually too many of them. <laughs> They're devastating the ecosystems there. And they were originally traced back to pet lionfish that were tipped out of people's tanks mm-hmm. somewhere in Florida. I had a lionfish sandwich last week. Did in you? Florida. How was it? It's all right. It's okay. It's 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 nice. Yeah. So if you're in a restaurant, guys, ask for lionfish yeah. not instead of tuna. And they probably won't have it on the menu. But what we want is a lot more 
restaurants serving lionfish instead of you know scrum uh, fish that are that are really in trouble. Yeah, in the southeast, you can you can find them all over the place. Yeah, I know. Depending on where you go in the world, you know, sometimes oh, with your spear fishing, yeah, we shoot that here. You don't shoot that here. We eat that here. We don't eat that there. I remember when everybody got the green light lionfish. If you're diving. And yeah, you see and one pop that thing. Which just seems people so, get they're so buy pretty. A new spear gun they're such that. a pretty fish that yeah. you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't shoot this lionfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely times where people will get that that Hawaiian sling or that pole spear and you know snorkel around and just be like, come on, I want to shoot something. You know? <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of nice. You that can shoot a lionfish. That it's all green light. So yeah, I just looked this up. Lionfish actually can produce thirty thousand eggs every four days. So <laughs> you don't lot. need to worry too much <laughs> about eating lionfish. But yeah, generally as a rule of thumb. Spear fishing, line fishing, that's not really the problem. It's mm-hmm. its the big trawlers, the commercial yeah. fishing. Mm-hmm. Like I said, this isn't necessarily a direct bit of surf news, but this does impact us particularly as water users because as the bigger fish that we eat get overfished and get, get pulled apart, that's where you start to see other populations hitting up. Uh, you know, as soon as you get imbalance in the ocean, you know, nobody likes, for example, going in the water and getting bit by sea lice or getting caught out by jellyfish. And actually, the problems will come home to us very, very quickly. Yeah, and I, I don't have, this isn't a scientific comment. This is just a, a speculation. But I wonder whether these incredible declines in ocean populations have got anything to do with the rise in shark attacks and sharks looking for you know, other food. I, I, that's, I've got no science behind that. I'm just speculating. Yeah. I, I think for me that this, this is an issue which really just totally overshadows all other surf news. I mean, it's yeah. just because it's yeah. so huge. It's like no, no one's going to remember. Any surf news, who political? The, <laughs> no one's going to remember who the world champion was in 50 years' time, but they're going to notice if there's just no life in the oceans. Mm. The, the guy who's really been the driving force behind all of this is a guy called Lewis Pugh, who you might have seen in viral videos swimming in his Speedos in Antarctica around icebergs, which oh, is something that he's doing to try and raise awareness for you know the biodiversity that's down there and the importance of protecting it and i just want to leave you with this this quote from lewis who's got a job title of the un patron for the oceans pretty cool job title. that's a really cool title <laughs> so he has a kind of interesting take on it and uh, and he said this for me this is an issue about justice justice between generations there seems to be something fundamentally wrong with us destroying our oceans so our children and grandchildren have absolutely nothing You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So listener emails, we have been off air for a little while. We've had lots of emails from all of you lovely listeners. Thank you so much for them, even though a lot of them uh, were asking us where we'd gone. (laughs) 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 Um, I really really wanted in this episode, actually, Harry, to announce to all of the listeners what it is that we've been working on behind the scenes at Surf Simply, but it's just not quite ready yet. So maybe next episode we'll have a big announcement for you listeners. Oh, big teaser. Yeah, big big teaser. teaser (laughs) Right. So the first email I've got here is from Raymond Morgan. Raymond is conducting a stakeholder survey for a new business idea. And he was interested in our opinions. Uh, He's a big fan of the show. He says, my business idea is a computer program that will allow the user to create a 3D model of a surfboard and then test that board in a simulation of the conditions that are determined by the user. This would allow for whoever's using the program to design a board and test it before having to drop a serious amount of money to actually test a physical surfboard. Being heavily involved in the technical aspects of surfing, does this business idea interest you? Do you see yourself using this software, whether it be for your own wants or to help show how surfboard design matters to those who attend the resort? 
So I think this is a really interesting and incredibly ambitious idea. I think the fundamental problem with it is that, first of all, you've got a prohibitively complex amount of factors that you've got to factor in. And mm -hmm. there, to my knowledge, there just isn't anywhere like the data available yet for anyone to do this. There this is no data. There is no data. There is no, well, obviously, you know, there's, there's lots of computer modeling for boats. There's been lots and lots of testing on boats, but that's moving over flat water. But to my not I, I haven't been able to find anything that's really tried to look at the interaction of the water flowing. Yeah, it, it effectively, you have water flowing up a wave face, and that interacts with the surfboard. And you also have the surfboard moving forwards across the water. And you have those two sets of flows, and that, that there is no parallel anywhere. And nobody, as far as I know, has, has done any testing. And then, of course, you've got the changing pull of gravity pulling you down the wave face as the inclination of the wave face changes. Mm -hmm. um, and then and you've then got the various angles that you put the board in the water, depending on what maneuver you're doing. The other problem with it is that you're creating a new problem, which is that when you go out and surf the board, you want to know how the board works and you want to know how that feels in terms of surfing. Mm -hmm. You can put it into the simulation and you can see how the board works, but now you have a new translation problem in that you have to translate the data that you can now see in the model into how that actually feels. Which is a really interesting part. The, the, my what to watch, we'll, we'll come on to it in a bit more detail later, is the uh, stab in the dark. And yeah. uh, D Dane Reynolds is testing a whole bunch of different boards for it. And he says, it's really hard for me to put into words what I'm feeling on each of these boards. Do they say uh, language is the father of thought? Maybe we need to start inventing more new nuanced words for describing different aspects of the uh, wave riding experience. Beyond sick, spicy, rad. <laughs> yeah, spicy. That board looks spicy under his feet. <laughs> uh, the Strider Wazalowski School of Vocabulary. <laughs> Ronnie Blake. I got, I got the best words. Um, I, I think that you know potentially this could be really really valuable for surfboard designers. You know, if if that once that data is available, and I was trying to think about you know how you'd gather the data, and I, the best thing I can think of is that you have you know a tank that's pushing water through the tank, and then I imagine a surfboard sort of stuck onto some kind of arm, which then lowers the board from the top into this you know sort of swimming pool that's got water being pushed through it by pumps. And then you have sensors on the bottom of the board and you have sensors around the edge of the tank. So you can then see as the arm changes the angles of the board in the water, how the, the water's moving around it and, and how it's being displaced and what the forces are on the bottom of the board. So you'd need mm -hmm. sensors in the board too. Well, I think the first thing that you'd actually need to do is to get some flow meters on the bottom of a surfboard and just go and catch some, some waves because we wouldn't even know how to design the tank because we don't even know what direction, the, the, the water that's flowing along the bottom of your surfboard. It's not just coming directly at the surfboard. It's not coming directly along the surfboard. And nobody, as far as I know, if anybody, uh, if listeners, if any of you guys uh, know any different to this, please let me know because I would love to find the details. But as far as I know, nobody knows exactly what direction and speed the water is doing on the bottom of the board. And so anytime anyone says they've hydrodynamically tested the fins, it's all based on a paradigm rather than on actual any information. Wouldn't a first starting step be getting flow meters on a board in, let's say, a wave pool, where well, you the, know what the wave is like every time? Certainly the more variables that you could reduce, the better, yeah. yeah. You know, if we could get into N-Land with, with some flow meters and just just put the board on trim on a high line and just cruise across the wave face, that would be a great starting point. Kelly, look, you get us <laughs> the invitation to the pool, we'll, we'll trim across it. <laughs> 
All right, so we got an email from Nick Smith. Hi, Nick, from England, who stayed with us uh, a few months ago. Really awesome guy. Um, and if anyone's been watching the Instagram, our Instagram, I think back in July or August or whenever he stayed, there's a little video of someone taking off on a 9-2 NSP and pulling it into a barrel on like a solid double overhead wave out at Guiana's. Well, that's Nick, which is I just thought that was really cool. Anyway, he, he wrote to say this. Uh, he's referring to a conversation we had in the podcast a few months ago mm-hmm. about how a lot of myths are perpetuated within surfing because of confirmation bias. And I think the example that we gave was that idea that the third wave in the set is always the biggest. And of course, what happens is that every time the third wave in the set is the biggest, you notice. And every time it's not, then you don't notice. And that's called confirmation bias. And that's how everyone thinks that that's true when it's not. Uh, And we sort of extrapolated that to talk about the conditions at various beaches. Like, oh, this place is always good on low tide. This place is always good on high tide or Mm -hmm. rising swell or whatever. Um, and he, he basically wrote an email to say, look, I think that this beach near me has actually been good on low tide. How can I account for confirmation bias without actually going out and gathering data? Yeah. And the short answer is, well, gathering data and doing science <laughs> is the process of accounting for <laughs> cognitive biases. So it's, what you're really saying is, how do I account for this without really having to do too much accounting for it? Um, and I, I get there is, I mean, I'm being kind of flippant. There is a short answer. There is a short shorthand kind of cheat to that and and you don't just have to use this for surfing you can kind of use this for anything basically you take the opposing point of view um that's contradictory to whatever you think might be the case and then you start looking for evidence that that's true you know so if someone says to you this beach is always better on low tide confirmation bias will dictate that you'll notice when it is good on low tide and you'll remember those occasions and you'll forget the times it wasn't good because maybe you didn't bother going to the beach because you saw someone else and they said oh it's no good and you didn't go you know for example so specifically start looking for when is it good on high tide you know so that's the shorthand kind of answer to that which i always think is an interesting one whenever people talk about science they always talk about proving things and proving things right Mm-hmm. And actually, the whole scientific process is desperately trying to prove yourself wrong. You know, if if you have a, a hypothesis that low tide is better or worse, actually, the scientific method is now do everything you can to prove the opposite. Right. And, and to prove and yourself wrong. And if it if you can't do that, now you've proved it. It's don't find one study that shows you're right. It's do everything you can to prove you're wrong. And if you can't do it, you're right for now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're so, right until someone. Can you prove know, you're I, right. I, I often have conversations with people about this, and they always go, "Oh, but you, you know, you need proof for everything." And I, it's like, no, no, I, I don't. All you do is every time you can't prove something wrong, it means you can say it's right with a higher degree of confidence. Yeah. And that degree of confidence gets higher and higher and higher until it becomes, you know, to all intents and purposes a fact. But you know, you never know. 100%. And you can use that way of thinking with any aspect of, well, of life really, but specifically of surf coaching. And, and actually, you know, a lot of people who come and stay at the resort talk to us about how unique the system that we use for teaching is and how we developed it. And that is how we developed it. Yeah. You know, we had ideas about how to teach and rather than go, yeah, that's probably right. Let's look for examples of when it's right. We tried to disprove it to test its validity. <laughs> Okay, ladies and gents, that is about all we've got time for for this second bumper episode. But we will be back again fairly soon. Uh, uh, Can I just say, we've had a few emails from people who've said that they've just listened to our back catalogue. I I just think that's a very bad idea, listeners. that sounds like a terrible (laughs) idea. I don't think you should listen to -to (laughs) back-to-back Surf Simply podcasts. (laughs) 
Before we go, though, uh, just a few more what to watches, a couple of things to keep you going until we are back next time. And mine is going to be, as I said earlier, the Stab in the Dark feature that Stab magazine did. Last year, they had Julian Wilson go out and test a whole bunch of different boards that were shaped completely plain, completely white, no identifying features, and he had to decide which was best and try and work out who shaped them all and all that sort of thing. This year, they got Dane Reynolds to do it. And if nothing else, it's a really good opportunity to see Dane Reynolds ripping. Yeah, it was nice seeing Dane Reynolds surf again. Yeah, Dane Reynolds surfing and surfing well. Yeah, surfing really well. But again, really, really interesting just to see that subjective nature of the boards and to to see him trying to figure out how these boards work, which ones are the uh, are the good ones. And I won't uh, I won't give you the spoiler and tell you who won. Uh, anything caught you guys' eyes? I I would check out the tour notes because the tour has been pretty interesting recently, and yeah. those, those tour notes videos are always awesome. They are, because the Tour Notes videos are bounced from one owner to another owner. They, they were Hurley, and then they were Stab, Magic Seaweed, and now it looks like the WSL have taken them on. How do they do them? Do they just ask all of the Tour to like give in their cell phone videos no, and Peter stuff? King. Yeah, Peter King does it throughout the other. Oh, he just goes around with yeah. the camera? He's he's just who walking who around used there. to be an employee of Hurley, right? And used to be an employee of Hurley. Is that of the surfers it. fame? It is. Of who, the surfers he was in the band, band with yeah. Kelly Slater and Romichardi back in the 90s. Correct. <laughs> really? Yeah. I did not know that. That is some really good surf pub quiz knowledge. <laughs> I've got their album on my computer. No way. <laughs> how, out of 10, how good is it? Actually, you know what? It's not bad. Are you when was the last time you listened to it voluntarily for no reason? You just thought, I'm going to listen to that, and you put it on. Uh, not long ago. I've got two of the songs in one of my playlists. Mind you, you do have some really? pretty ropey other albums <laughs> yeah. in your playlists. I d- I've but seen Harry's library. Yeah. It stretches. It stretches. I just have a lot of different interests. Far. I've got... <laughs> I just like hearing Harry say hip-hop. Hip-hop. <laughs> hip-hop. <laughs> that I'm so street. Don't you know? <laughs> um, anything caught your eyes? Yeah, I've got one for you, Harry. This is actually called It Ain't Pretty. And that was a recommendation from Becca McLaughlin. There's a website called itain'tprettyfilm.com. You can check it out. Uh, the ladies who charge the outer bar days at uh, Ocean Beach in San Francisco. So it could be pretty pretty cool to see some some big surf out the back. And from what I've heard from you, Harry, this is... I've never surfed Ocean Beach, but from what I've heard, it's a pretty hairy paddle out. And when it gets big, it can be... I think it's the worst paddle out. <laughs> yeah. I know it's, it's generally rated as once it's overhead high, it is the toughest paddle out anywhere in the world. I know wow. that Surfline's, uh, Surfline has like a travel guide where they do a 1 to 10 rating on, on paddle out difficulty, yeah. and it's 1 to OB. Yeah. It's like 1 to Ocean <laughs> Beach. <laughs> on a scale that, of 1 to Ocean limit. Beach, yeah. what do you think? So thank you, Becca, um, for that recommendation. Yeah. Uh, you got anything for us, Ash? Uh, I've been telling you guys about my, uh, my twin fin infatuation at the moment, and an Australian guy named Torin Martin has been putting out a series of uh, him surfing these really beautiful morning of the earth surfboards twin fins. Oh, he and rips. I love watching him rips. surf. And uh, he just released one uh, just up the coast from here, actually in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's him surfing these right point breaks that are dreamy. So well, well, you were surfing with him out in Bali, right? Yeah. So he was in the Deus event that I surfed in, and I was blown away with how well he surfed. I, I couldn't believe how, how, how good of a surfer he was. and Yeah, so just watching that video, I got pretty inspired to go surf the MR. And oh, an old dog can learn new tricks. <laughs> I don't know that you can call yourself an old right. dog in this crowd, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You're an old soul. Yeah. 
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is all that we've got time for this episode. We will be back again in a couple of weeks. Until then, it is goodbye from all of us. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Thanks for having me. This was a blast.